while we're in this series entitled Lies My Preacher Told Me, or abbreviated Lies Preachers Tell. And again, I want to emphasize that I didn't choose that title because I was trying to be cute or clever or sarcastic or um, snarky. I chose that title because preachers tell lies. And if it was just that they told lies and it was benign and didn't have any effect on anybody, it'd be one thing. But the fact is, as a pastoral counselor, I work with people who are uh, the um, focus of those lies, who hear those lies and, and are seriously affected by them. And I mean seriously affected. It's not like they're just uncomfortable <clears throat> or they, they um, don't believe the, the right things. Uh, it, it, it affects our spiritual health if we don't have the truth. And if we're getting half-truths, if we're giving, being given uh, human doctrines, human agendas, man-made theological systems, and being told that this is the authoritative word of God, it messes with our mental health. It messes with our spiritual health. And, of course, that plays out in the relational realm as well. So, so this is not just some academic study. Uh, this is not something I'm doing just because I have a burr under my saddle. I'm doing this because I care about how these things affect you. I certainly have been the uh, victim of lying preachers myself. And um, I know how it affected me. I know how it affected my family, my children. And um, uh, and thank God, thanks be to God, we have the Word of God. We have the Scriptures. We have the Spirit of Truth indwelling us so that we are not to lean into despair. We are not to um, throw up our hands and say there is no there is no way to find the truth because there is. I mean, God has made every provision for us in his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. And by the presence of the spirit of truth within us, our resonance teacher, if we will devote our time to learning how to read the inspired text, preferably within a fellowship, a small group of other Christians, so that you can share and you can worship together. It's a, and isn't that the definition of the church? <laughs> isn't that what the church is supposed to be about? But when that's not happening, it's easy to begin just to rely on the clergy, to lean into your confessions and your creeds, into your liturgy, to rely too much on leaders and books and devotionals for your theology. <clears throat> and you're setting yourself up if you do that. So I'm really concerned that, that there's that the lies that are so prevalent within American evangelicalism. Um, and I consider myself an evangelical. I, 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 I'm not some wild-eyed antagonist. I, I'm a son of the church. I love the church. I am devoted to her uh, well-being and her welfare. Um, I care about you as my brothers and sisters deeply, uh, and I am devoted and am absolutely uh, enraptured with the uh, joy that I feel uh, at being able to uncover the inspired text and, and, and discover the truth. Let every man, let God be true, though every man be a liar. 
And that's the stance we have to take these days. Let God be true in his word, by the Spirit, though every man be a liar. So these are the times in which we live. <clears throat> and so the particular lie that we're addressing right now is this lie that somehow, some way, that either pre-conversion, you have to be prepared by the law to receive the gospel, or post-conversion, you have to go back to the law in order to find sanctification. Now, there's a reason that doctrine developed, and it's centered around the Ten Commandments, and it's referred to by those who adhere to this theological system, even though today that thought, that teaching, has spread out into independent evangelicalism as well. Uh, The reason this developed is because within just a hundred years after the apostles, into the second century, already there was a drifting away from the definition, the biblical definition of grace, of faith, and even the Lord Jesus himself. And so I want to talk with you a little bit more about how we got here, how it is, and, and let me give you a little bit of a preview, because this is so important to understand. Most, for, throughout most of church history, throughout most of church history, the church existed within a uh, context of European Christendom, which means after Constantine in 313 AD, the church was institutionalized, became part of the Roman Empire, became... The, the emperor became the head of the church. And we had what became the Roman Catholic Church and, and then split off at the, at the mid-millennium um, to uh, other factions. And then the great split in 1000 AD, 1100 AD about, um, was with the Greek Orthodox. And so there's the split between the East and the West. And, but all that said... Either way, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, it it all was existed within a state church context. So the state and the church were united. And to be a member, a citizen of the state was to be a member of the church. And to be a member of the church was to be a citizen of the state. And that meant there had to be a hierarchy. And that's what I want to share with you a little bit about today is to help you understand how it is we moved away from the purity and the simplicity of the gospel into these strange doctrines that uh, reinforce the requirements of life under a theocracy, but really you can't find in the New Testament. You really can't find in the Bible as a whole. How did we get here? When did we start believing that the the law was divided up into three parts and that, that the Ten Commandments were still binding upon our conscience and upon our, our uh, conduct? How did we get here to the point where we started, we started believing that baptism was for infants and that the Holy Spirit regenerated ba- uh, children at baptism? 
or made them, as we found during the Reformation, the doctrine developed that uh, uh, there was a uh, covenant child created by baptism. <clears throat> See, when you're, when you're subject to the emperor, when you're subject to the state, and the civil authorities are setting the parameters and defining what the church is, ultimately, the civil authorities will also define what the gospel is. And they'll also define, ultimately then, the image of Christ into your life. And that's why they called it the Dark Ages, because the light of the gospel went out. And so, um, and this began as early as the second century, as I say. Let me just give you a reading on that. Um, E.H. Broadbent, the church historian, and again, I highly recommend that you learn to read some good church history. Um, you, have to, you have to stretch a little bit to find some, some thorough church history, but, but it, it's important, just like you're a student of the Bible, to be a student of church history, because that's your history. That's your story. And so much of what has happened in church history has a direct impact on you today. Um, E.H. Broadbent, in his book, The Pilgrim Church, this is very interesting. It has very important implications for your own spiritual health today in 2023. He says, The practice of baptizing believers on their confession of faith in the Lord Jesus, which is biblical, as taught and exemplified in the New Testament, was continued in later times. The first clear reference to the baptism of infants is in a writing of Tertullian in A.D. 197, in which he condemns the practice, beginning to be introduced of baptizing the dead and baptizing infants. The way for this change, however, had been prepared by teaching concerning baptism, baptism, which was divergent, important word, divergent, from that in the New Testament. For early in the second century, baptismal regeneration was already being taught. Now, baptismal regeneration means that an infant is actually regenerated, born again at baptism, through the faith of the parents and through the uh, authority of the church. You see, it, it would just as as silly as that may sound to some of you, that that is a, a very well established teaching today. The Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church all teach this. This, together with the equally striking change by which the remembrance of the Lord in his death, and the breaking of bread, and the drinking of wine among his disciples, was changed into an act miraculously performed, it was claimed, by a priest, intensified the growing distinction between clergy in laity. The church uniting itself with the Roman state began to be redefined by the Roman state. The growth of a clerical system under the domination of the bishops, who in turn were ruled by metropolitans, which is just regional bishops, controlling extensive territories. Listen to this now substituted 
a human organization and religious forms for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in the separate churches. So, Broadbent is saying that there was a point in early church history, not long after the apostles. The reference here is to 170 to 197 A.D., a couple hundred years after the birth of Christ. 150 years after the apostles, at the most. That there was a growth of a clerical system that developed, of bishops and priests and metropolitans after the Roman order of authority. And this form, this organization, replaced and substituted human organization, religious forms, for the power and working of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the scriptures in the separate churches. Pretty amazing. Jerosoph Pelikan, in his incredibly well done and very thorough church history, speaks of how there was a point in church history when um, the let me see here. The ministers of the church, and he says here, for another distinction of Augustinianism and the Reformation, however, there is a considerable support in the teaching of the second and third century fathers, the distinction between the hierarchical priesthood and the priesthood of all believers. Already in Clement of Rome and in the Didache, which is a uh, form of teaching, the manual for the church, early in the church, the attributes of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament were being applied to the ministers of the church. What was happening is that an organization was formed under the control and oversight of the emperor. Basilicas were built. Cathedrals were built, hollowed spaces, sacred buildings, regional and local bishops and priests that would give them special miraculous powers to preside over the, the Lord's table. And the attributes of the obsolete, defunct, expired Levitical priesthood that stood as a substitution, hear me now, stood as a substitution to the singular, exclusive, and unique and final high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So by the 3rd and 4th century, you were already going to a man to find absolution. There was another mediator. There was another intermediary between you and God, and that was your local bishop and his priests. Now, something else happened, which is very significant to you in our study here. And that is that by the 2nd and 3rd century, the gospel itself was being redefined. Now, it's interesting to note that in the 2nd and 3rd century, the Pauline letters addressing many of these issues had yet to be widely distributed. 
And so while there was some and there were, there were uh, those who had the writings of the apostles, uh, they weren't widely distributed. There was, so there, everyone was familiar with them. They were quoted. They were referred to in homilies. But they just weren't widely distributed enough to get the church good and saturated in the inspired text. So, uh, T.F. Torrance, Thomas F. Torrance, in his book, The Doctrine of Grace and the Apostolic Fathers, notes that something very significant happened in the 2nd and 3rd century under what the, is called the so-called apostolic fathers, meaning those who came after the apostles. It says, Grace by its very nature in the thought of the New Testament must be the absolutely predominant factor in faith, else it is not grace. In the Apostolic Fathers, grace did not have that radical character. The great presupposition of the Christian life for them was not a deed of decisive significance that cut across human life and set it on a wholly new basis, grounded upon the self-giving of God. No, what took absolute precedence was God's call to live a new life in obedience to revealed truth. Grace, as far as, as it was grasped, was subsidiary to that. In other words, what Torrance is saying is that grace was redefined by the Apostolic Fathers as being not absolutely sufficient, just necessary. In other words, we understand, according to the New Testament, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Our justification, our sanctification, our acceptance before the Father is absolutely and certainly paid for and, and secured, accomplished by the once-for-all sacrificed and finished work of Jesus Christ and his continued intercession for us before the Father. We are the beneficiaries, we are the recipients, and we are working out the implications of that in our life by the power of the Spirit, but we do not add to it. Listen, if you are in Christ, you will never be more accepted before the Father than you are right now. You'll have a better awareness of it. You'll grow in your consciousness of it. You'll grow in your experience of it. And then as we move towards that day, when it'll be fully realized, we rejoice in hope. Because while we are not yet fully realized in our salvation. It is fully accomplished. And we must never uh, confuse those two things. We must never confuse that just because we are not yet fully realized in our salvation, that it isn't fully accomplished. And this is what happens. In the early church fathers, they confused the two things. And Judaism crept back in with its emphasis on law and Hellenism, Greek Hellenism and philosophy uh, crept into the church with his emphasis on human achievement and the centrality of man in all things. And 
Ultimately, the gospel was gradually and slowly, it says here, that it was a gradual change. And so Torrance goes on to explain how that the gospel was turned into a new law. The apostolic fathers returned to the impossible situation from which Christ came deliberately to redeem. And that is the compulsion, the delusion, that we could somehow, even by grace, even with the work of grace on our side, save ourselves. So instead of the gospel being the proclamation of God's full achievement in Christ, the gospel was transformed and perverted into a gospel in which Jesus died to make your salvation possible and that grace was there to enable you, but ultimately you were responsible for closing the circle. You were responsible for closing the deal with God. So instead of working out your justification, which is the biblical paradigm, the apostolic fathers redefined the gospel so that you're working towards justification, depending on how well you performed in your use of the sacraments, the good deeds that you did, the whole Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox mindset is that justification and acceptance with God is something that you work towards, not something that you enjoy and rejoice in and work out into your character, into your life. Hope that's making sense to you. This is, these things are very important. So with the Apostolic Fathers, this was closely connected with their eschatology as well, which represented a considerable change from the thought of the New Testament. Everything was being changed, even to the point where Christianity became Judaized. And we have this thing here. He says, consonant with the failure to apprehend the death of Christ went the failure to appreciate the person of Christ. Now, this is, this is Thomas F. Torrance, one of the, one of the he's, he's passed now, but he's, he's one of the most leading uh, New Testament scholars that ever lived. One of the greatest church historians. Constant with the failure to apprehend the death of Christ, went the failure to appreciate the person of Christ. Think of that, folks. I mean, <laughs> I know you've probably never heard these things before. Uh, I mean, I had to dig it up myself. But it is astonishing, and it certainly explains the trajectory, then, that the church went on. The cross is the central act in the life and work of Christ. To misunderstand that is to misunderstand Christ and to thrust him into the background. That is just what happened in the literature of the Apostolic Fathers. This reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. 
For I betrothed you to one husband, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that, as, a, as a, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. Think of that. It's bad enough that there are those who are preaching another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. But the Corinthians were putting up with it. They were okay with it. After all, they were preaching Jesus. They were preaching the gospel. They were preaching a, a, a spirituality. It just wasn't apostolic. It just wasn't biblical. It just wasn't true. And that's what I'm trying to convey to you in this series. That there is so much that calls itself Christianity that has come down throughout the ages that began in the 2nd century with the Apostolic Fathers and their redefinition of the, of, the, of the meaning of grace, their redefinition, therefore, of the gospel into some kind of a self-help, self-justification program, and therefore, their redefinition of Jesus himself. If this doesn't sober you, I don't know what will, folks. So, this is this series very important. So we get to the Reformation. And thanks be to God, the initial flame of the Reformation was hot. And it was white. And good things were happening. Luther recovered the gospel. He recovered the, um, the meaning of sola scriptura. The authority, the sole authority, final authority of Scripture. And then, something awful happened. And what happened was that the state stepped in, which had become now a Protestant or Lutheran state, and demanded that Luther make his Reformation a state church reformation. In other words, that he bring his reformation and his teaching into line with the interests of the state itself. And the result of that was a shift in the emphasis of the, of the reformation from the emphasis on the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and emphasis on Christ and His finished work on our behalf to the establishment of a Lutheran creed whereby all citizens of Germany would have to comply, to which all citizens of Germany would have to comply the doctrine of baptismal regeneration was retained instead of reformed. And Luther saw what was coming. 
he recognized that the day was coming when this mass church that belonged to everybody meant that, that there was going to be a day when the church belonged to nobody. It wasn't even going to be a church. You're going to have a, a state church congregation made up primarily of citizens of the state who were unregenerate. They had yet to be born again. They weren't really Christians. They were just good Lutherans. And they were just good um, citizens of Germany. You see, because to be a citizen of the state was to be a Lutheran, and to be a Lutheran was to be a citizen of the state, and if you weren't a good Lutheran, you were in treason. You were committing treason because it was an act against the state. That's why so many of our uh, Baptist New Testament believers who refused to step into and comply with the demands of the state church were persecuted, even put to death under Protestant civil authorities. Just like they had been under Catholic civil authorities. So instead of having this one-headed monster in European Christendom with the Pope and his state church and his supreme authority over all the, the all of Europe, you now had a two-headed monster. You had what was called the church with a the papal head and then the Protestant head. In Germany, it was Luther. In uh, England, it became Henry VIII, the king. Ultimately, in Switzerland, it was Zwingli initially and then ultimately Calvin. And the the fatal flaw of the Reformation, in which, out of which so many good things came. We ought to be very grateful for the Reformation. What we ought to do, though, is mourn and grieve about how it ended. Because it did end. By the second century after Luther, the church had become just a dead orthodox thing. The fire had been quenched. And Luther saw this coming. Historians document that Luther in his final days was a very depressed man. He was very grieved because he saw his vision, his original vision for Reformation quenched by complying with the demands of the state church. Okay, I hope you're following this because it's very important. There is, if, if you're following with me, I want to commend you because this, this is something 98% of Christians will never know about their own history. And, and then they don't understand what's going on. And they don't understand why their faith is so precious to them so they can nurture it and fan it into a flame. So Luther himself recognized the folly of what was happening in the Lutheran state church. And ultimately, the, the church became just a, a big uh, theocratic institution filled with both believers and unbelievers, and more unbelievers than believers. Now, here's the deal. Let me drop back down into history, into the time 
when the law was given to Moses. The law was given, ordained through angels, delivered to Israel by God through Moses with the creation and governing of a theocracy in mind. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those are all uh, numbers, those are all uh, laying out of the law. Moses laid out the law precisely for the governance of a theocratic state centering on the temple. There was no separation of temple and state. There was no, there was separation between king, prophet, and priest, but they were all rowing in the same direction. They were all part of one big theocratic state, the state of Israel, the nation of Israel. And my point here in drawing that out is this. The law was given to restrain sin within the nation of Israel, to expose sin, to restrain sin, and to uh, be a foreshadow of God's better plan that would be fulfilled in the Messiah. Now, back to our story about Luther and the state church. Just like ancient Israel, the reformers had on their hands this theocratic demand to create a state church. There was no separation of state and church, except in those who refused to comply, those independent churches that refused to comply and came under great persecution as a result. But nonetheless, the pilgrim church continued. So Luther's concern then was, what are we going to do with a state church that is filled with unregenerate German citizens? How are we going to constrain that? And that became the Anglican problem. It became the Reformed problem, uh, the Covenant problem under uh, Zwingli. How, how do I, how do I Zwingli and back in Zurich, he, he wanted to, uh, he once preached the New Testament. He once preached against infant baptism. He once preached that every believer should be able to read for themselves the Bible. And then the civil authorities came in and told Ulrich Zwingli, no, you can't do that. You have to retain infant baptism. Well, Zwingli had already been preaching against infant baptism. And there were hundreds of his students who agreed with him, saw it in the New Testament and said, you're right. Baptism is for those who profess faith, not for infants. And they took him seriously, and they began to live it, and they began to baptize it, rebaptize themselves. That's why they call them the Anabaptists, meaning rebaptized, baptized again. A movement for which Zwingli was initially all for. They were simply responding to his teaching. But then the state came in and said, no, 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 we need you to retain infant baptism. Well, Zwingli could not go back to baptism or regeneration. He had preached against that. He preached against the notion that somehow a baby is 
born again if they sprinkle water on him. So what's he going to do? He's standing between the truth of the New Testament and the civil authorities. And his students are standing with the New Testament. So Zwingli tried to bridge the gap by developing a new theology. And I mean a new theology. He even admitted it had never been taught before. These things are all in history books. They're all in biblical history books, excuse me, um, church history books. And so Zwingli developed a doctrine grounded in the Abrahamic covenant around the doctrine, the teaching of circumcision, the sign of that covenant. And he completely ignored the New Testament teaching of the new covenant as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant. And so he developed this, fabricated this whole teaching of a covenant of grace that superseded all the biblical covenants for which the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant were simply administrations of this overarching covenant of grace. And, ultimately, even the new covenant, consecrated in our Lord's blood, was simply a most recent administration, manifestation of this covenant of grace. So what he was able to do then, he's able to reach back into the Abrahamic covenant and use the sign of that covenant, being circumcision, and pull that forward into the New Testament and say, the baptism of infants, the baptism of infants is the New Testament form of circumcision. And now includes girls as well. And so he was able to develop this whole theology in order to justify, once again, baptizing infants without having to fall back to baptismal regeneration. Do you see how twisted and contorted and perverted the gospel will get when men get their grubby little hands on it and have to modify it, have to twist it, have to redefine it in order to fit some human agenda? And this, beloved, has happened throughout church history. And every generation of which you are now a part must stand for the truth. Must throw off the shackles of the traditions of the elders. The weights and the, and the blankets, the cloaks of falsehood. And learn how to read the inspired text in such a way that it sets you free from all these man-made teachings, these lies that put you into bondage. So that's the church history. That's just an overview, a brief overview of how we got here. So that there is still today there is still today, within many Protestant traditions, this notion 
that that was exported from the European state church, brought in, imported into this uh, this continent, that somehow, just like they had to have an emphasis on the law, which was one of the reasons the Westminster Confession of Faith was developed by Parliament in the first place, was to be uh, a document that would be widely accepted amongst the British population and used with its emphasis on the Mosaic Law as a restraining tool against the decline, moral decline, within British society. They had the Gospel. They had the Bible. Men had died. Tyndale had given his life to have the Bible translated. But what Parliament wanted was the Westminster Divines to come up with a document that would be in every home, that would be preached from the pulpits that would serve as a restraining influence on those unregenerate good churchgoers that were part of the British state church. And so they had to modify and twist and pervert the gospel to include the law. Now why is this important to you? Let me just close this session with some very important reasons why this is important to you. Again, I'm not just ranting. I, I began this work, and I began this series, and I began every series on a pastoral level. I'm not just in, interested in finding a, a platform to rant on. <laughs> I, got, I have other things to do. But I do care about how you are affected spiritually. And I am very aware, I'm very aware of the prevalence of falsehood masking itself as Christian truth. The traditions of the elders have never ceased to come to you as the authoritative word from God. And they're not. So why is this important to you? Just a few points and then we'll be done. This issue about bringing your conscience and your conduct under the moral law, which we've already learned, doesn't really exist. There's no moral law. There's just the law. Paul said it in Galatians 5, didn't he? We read that. I testify again to everyone who receives circumcision or any aspect of the law, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Now this is important to you because to begin to relate to God on the basis of law, however well intended, however well it sounds, and how, no matter how well justified by your confessions and by your traditions, is to place yourself under obligation to keep the whole law. The apostles, Jesus and the apostles, simply, as well as all of first, first century Judaism, never understood the law as being divided up for our convenience. The law was a law. Jesus said it, didn't he, in Matthew 5. Not one jot or tittle will be done away with until all is accomplished. And he accomplished it. Thanks be to God. And in him the righteous requirement of the law is met in us today, Romans 8, 3, and 4. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, and that is to be under the law, but under or by the Spirit, instead by the Spirit, which is to be under grace. So, if you place yourself under any aspect of the Mosaic law for any reason, whether you think you must keep the Sabbath in order to be acceptable to God, that you must um, tithe in order to be acceptable to God, or be under the curse of Malachi 3, or whatever else it may be. If you're going to place your conscience under the tablets of stone called the Ten Commandments, you're in trouble. You're going to have to keep the whole law. And if you do not keep it and keep it perfectly, you will be under a curse. These are serious things spiritually. In fact, in Galatians 5.4, he says, To begin by the Spirit and to seek to finish by the flesh, which is to come back to the law after having begun by faith, by the Spirit, you shrink back to the law. You think you can complete your Christian life, live your Christian life out by law-keeping, is to actually be alienated from Christ. Do you hear what I just said? Paul said in Galatians 5.4, You have been severed from Christ. Cut off from Christ. Alienated from Christ. Just like a spouse would be alienated from a spouse. Let me read it and it's, read those two sentences together. And I testify again to everyone who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are being justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, verse 5, are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And then he asked them, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So if you're going to put yourself under law and you're going to begin to relate to God on the basis of law, whether it's tithing based on Malachi chapter 3 or Sabbath keeping or just subjecting your conscience to a, a set of of laws on a tablet of stone or wood hanging in your living room. You're going to find that you, you can't just stop there. You've got to get all into Leviticus, all into Deuteronomy, and you better keep it perfectly. You have to keep the whole law. And if you do that, you're severing yourself, you're alienating yourself, you're estranging yourself from Christ. You begin to see now why this is so important. You can certainly understand better why Paul said this is a different gospel. Now listen, Christ fulfilled the law. And by his death, he assumed the curse of the law on our behalf. The curse was trying to live under the law and not being able to. That's Romans 7. The curse for the Jew was trying to live according to the law and not being able to. It was a curse. They were under a curse. Blessing or curse? And it was more curse than blessing. 
the delusion was of the Pharisees is that they could keep the law. They could even do more than God required. And all it produced in them was hypocrisy. Whitewashed tombs. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it says clearly that Jesus became a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then finally, it's important to you because the gift of the Spirit is God's sufficiency for the Christian life of love and true holiness. So, beloved, this is not a point on which my which believers may merely agree to disagree. It is not benign. It is not incidental. It is not just splitting hairs. It is just it is not just theologians arguing with theologians. This is very real practical effects on your spiritual life and consequently your mental health and your relational health. Well, we'll pause there. We're out of time. I hope this is helpful to you. We'll probably just close this little talk about the moral law here. I think you've heard my point. If you've listened to all three of these episodes, you should have got the point. If you have questions, send me an email at encounterrecovery at gmail.com. And we'll continue to look at, periodically, the lies that preachers tell and how you can get yourself free from them and walk in the truth by continuing in Christ's word and discovering the truth that sets you free. Amen.